0: Now we'll be going uh, into step three and four. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I get a great deal out of this uh, 24-hour book personally and uh, one page back in july was especially appropriate i thought for our fellowship at the meetings at home when i go to regular street aa it it seems like uh, people will get up in front of a audience and and describe how frightened they are and how terrible they are at speaking and, and how unable they're ever able to consider being a speaker and telling their story and then they end up doing a beautiful job of it um, and uh, it's I've caught myself several times um, being the nature that I am a little critical about uh, things I see or judgmental about somebody I see like a, a fellow that would come into a AA meeting with a big motorcycle belt on and a big uh, brass buckle and a t-shirt with uh, cigarettes rolled up in the shoulder big chain around his neck dark glasses and so forth and I said well this this meeting is not going to be what I thought it was going to be what uh, what in the world could I possibly learn from this fellow and he ended up being the most important member of the meeting for me that night so my judgment is way off Uh, uh, many times but on July 22nd it said this in the 24-hour book one of the finest things about AA is the diversity of its membership we come from all walks and stations of life all types and classes of people are represented in an AA group being different from each other in certain ways we can each make a different contribution to the whole some of us are weak in one respect but strong in another AA can use the strong points of all its members and can disregard their weaknesses AA is strong not only because we all have the same problem but also because of the diverse talents of its members each one can contribute his part we, we demonstrate that every meeting we go to and uh, certainly uh, the talent in, in uh, this room is um, is incalculable as far as I'm concerned and uh, it's a pleasure to be one of your colleagues I want to step uh, have uh, four step three uh, our next speaker come to the podium Sheila from Wisconsin
1: hi everybody am I into the mic enough for you no. I'm oh good how's that a little better there are some of you in this very audience that would rather not hear my voice Hi, I'm Sheila. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And I'm really excited to be here. Every year it gets a little bit better. Every year I have a little more fun. And if I have much more fun than this guy's, I might just explode. So, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to speak here. And I guess. I have a hard time with academic things, but I have to share with you the fact that I always wanted to get up in front of a large group of doctors and lecture, and now you're mine. What can I say? I didn't know I'd have to get to be an alcoholic and an addict to do that little thing. But these are just small sacrifices that we pay for the good stuff at the end, and I think those of you who know me a little know I mean that from the heart. Um, Let me tell you that I'm really kind of pleased to have the third step to talk about in any fashion because that means that I can rely on the portion of the third step that gets revealed to me when you people talk to me and that's how I get in touch with my higher power about 90% of the time. One of my uh, recovering friends who is not at this meeting uh, taught me a trick that I've used every time I've spoken since I got to meet him, and his name is Tom W. from the Milwaukee area, which is where I come from these days, and before he does something like this or an intervention or one of those good things that we all, or a bunch of us do, he always says one little prayer that he taught me when we were about to intervene on my hometown police chief about four years ago, and I've taken on that habit from him, and what his prayer is, is dear God don't let me get in your way and as I was sitting here feeling excited and somewhat apprehensive that was the prayer that I repeated to myself because I have a lot of things I'd like to say to you and I have someone strategically planted in the audience to remind me if I get much over too long okay um the third step is both the easiest and the most difficult of all of them for all of us. I came to this program uh, recovering addict and alcoholic five years ago in the past week. Having gone through treatment for the second time, uh, a Jewish person in a Jewish community of four in a small town in southern central Wisconsin, one of 20 women in, or 10 women in a class of aspiring physicians at Northwestern University for medical school and always kind of the perpetual outsider. And I got to that location by deciding, in my infinite wisdom, at the age of approximately five, when I was watching my dad with his doctor bag run out to the football field to fix a kid that got knocked flat, I decided that I wanted to do that because I wanted to know what to do. And I would say that that's a real good start for an alcoholic and an addict. I think that my life has been a perpetual search for how to fix things, how to fix you, how to fix me, and how to be in, oh, here it comes, it's the C word, control. And that's really continued to be a struggle. Uh, But then again, that's half the fun, is the struggle. I became aware that there was a higher power somewhere along in my religious training when uh, my rabbi called me a good Christian. (laughs) I mean, that really was relatively disturbing to the 11-year-old assimilated mind. Uh, Having fit nowhere else, having had the Christians in my little town believe that I was a Jew, now my rabbi believed that I was a Christian and he then explained that to me and i think that that has some meaning for this step and for this group and what the meaning that he explained to me was to live your life in a fashion that was ideal moral ethical and admirable in all ways to make of life an ethical and moral celebration or as we would say to one day at a time to do the right thing and for me that was the beginning of some confusion but great pride and until I became addicted and alcoholic I took pride in the fact that I was an ethical moral person and that I kept trying to do the right thing and that pattern persisted but once I became an alcoholic and addict I could never quite get it right. My journey in recovery has been a reversal of all the detachment that occurred in the years of alienation in my addiction. It's real hard to be spiritual to connect with a higher power when i you know when i put roadblocks and obstacles in the way one of my teachers currently taught me that one of the things that we can't do with people who are in recovery is put obstacles in the way of recovery and when i thought a little bit that was the history of my using years in the years that i thought there was no god it was perhaps not that there was not a higher power but that i wasn't there in any meaningful sense to relate you have to be, to be intimate you have to risk and I wasn't taking any risks except higher doses and more drugs or bigger bottles, more booze and I had only a few experiments in illicit substances but I illicitly used a lot of legal substances and there is no difference and through it all I stumbled along just trying to do the next right thing just trying to fix it, just trying to make my palpitations a little better, my hot flashes a little better, whatever it was, or the pain go away, or to be able to sleep at night. And all the time, I thought that my higher power had deserted me, and at that time, my higher power was God, and my higher power today remains God. Your higher power, I would like to point out to you, does not have to be. If you will take one moment with me now, as I steal an idea from someone else in this audience, I would like you to understand with me that there are two concepts that are real important to me and one of them i'd like to demonstrate now one is that my rabbi once said that prayer is the humble admission that we did not make ourselves for those of us who did not make ourselves there then must be a higher power my higher power is also in this room and if any of you are having as good a time as i am at this meeting if you will all just take one moment right now while I'll be silent and feel the strength that's in this room and the power of the love that exists here and fills us to overflowing, you will know that there is a power greater than you and I invite you to do that now. You see every time I have my doubts all I have to do is meet you here once again and they're gone. I've heard a lot of neat definitions of how to work the third step since I've had my few years sobriety and I'd like to share with you I think maybe the best of what I've heard. I sobered up in Milwaukee. Uh, I had one treatment prior to that. I don't think I had a sober moment in it or after it through no fault of the treatment program but I was not a willing student. But my hometown at that time was a place called Evansville, Wisconsin, population 2635 on Saturday afternoons. Um, Most people left town for the weekend, but I don't know where they went. There was almost no place else to go. And in that neck of the woods, there are a couple of things that I learned. One of the things that I learned was, you know, really working the third step is just doing the next right thing, and I lean on that very heavily. When I have a question about what's next, my personal addicted instinct is to try and figure it out. Here we go. It's very difficult for me to take risks, and one of the risks that I have a hard time taking is the risk that I'm not in control, and the risk that even though my intellect tells me otherwise from time to time, that there may be a master plan or a big design that offers me help and safety, and I have a lot of trouble getting from here to there. But it's a real essential part of my recovery. The people who taught me how to do that said such wonderful things as a guy named John, who subsequently moved to to Montana from Madison, Wisconsin, in one meeting on a Saturday morning in Madison looked at us and we were talking about our wonderful intellectual ideas of what the third step was. And he said, you know, how I work the third step is, I get up on, in the morning and I look out the window and if there aren't any bars on it, I make coffee. <laughs> a lot of truth in that sentence. So when I wake up in the morning and I get real anxious and I think some awful thing from the past is going to jump out from underneath the bed where all my gremlins hide when I go to sleep and do something awful to my day, I remember Jen. I remember, I can't remember the the lady's name who said this, uh, I think it was Lexington, who stood up in this very place and she looked around and she said, you know, an alcoholic is born with a vulture on the end of the bed, so when you wake up, get up, and that's a restatement of the same thing that the third step requires faith and action. The first thing we do is we get up and act. The sitting and thinking got me here. The acting will get me better. And then there's the one that Bob Earl gave, I think it was in San Diego at the first meeting I ever heard, and his definition of the third step, using the third step was how he works the third step is that He gets up in the morning and gets dressed and he walks out the door and when he hits a wall, he turns left. (laughs) You see, what I'm learning is that I'm not responsible for judgments. I'm responsible for action and the judgments are those of my higher power. And if my higher power is this room, that's fine with me. That's just fine with me. What has come from this has been enormous riches. My brain doesn't have to be so busy anymore now that I don't have to figure things out. That gives my soul a little time to grow. I get lots more hugs this way because I don't have to worry about what people think and I can ask for them and give them back because that's an action that reaffirms my higher power is here and connected with me. And to me, recovery is intimacy and connectedness and reality. Dr. Harrington is here today and I think we're all kind of pleased that he's with us. He's one of my mentors and one of the gentlemen responsible for my recovery. And one of the things that he has said to me in the past and to many of us was that alcoholism is the search for happiness in the absence of reality. And that recovery is the search for happiness in the presence of reality. And the thing that delights me now and is truly a gift of working this step is the fact that every day my world becomes more real. And as I risk more and more I get more and more, and I get closer to the reality, and the reality gets better than I'd ever dreamed that it could be. My expectations have always been of the negative kind. I was one of those little kids that sat on the bottom stair at 3 o'clock in the morning wondering why the rest of the world wasn't up and what I'd done wrong. I had no earthly reason for that to be true, but it was true. It took me until I was about 43 or 44 years old and came to my first meeting of this group to find out that that was okay. That that was okay, that there was a higher power if it existed in this room. And that if I just did what you guys told me that I would be okay and that as I stand, warts and all, I am good enough to be with you and I admire all of you enormously. We were sitting at dinner last night, the alumni from my treatment center, where, where I'm now proud to be working. And I was looking around the room and thinking, you know, how m- how important uh, my higher power has been in my life. First of all, he made me what I was. And that was a little girl in a small town who was Jewish by ancestry. And then he had the wisdom to make me an alcoholic and an addict. You know, I didn't like any of the first two choices very much. I mean, they were kind of marginal existences out of the mainstream. And Then I got into the years of addiction, and I didn't listen much to a higher power at all. But last night, my higher power told me that I was in exactly the right place, and the right place is where he has brought me. And he has brought me here to share my experience, strength, and hope with you, my family. And I thought that at the table last night as we were all saying one to another, sitting in the richness of friendship and fellowship, that it really doesn't get much better than this. For those of you who are newcomers, remember, the strain of trying to figure things out isn't the answer. Believe what you can touch and feel in this program, and what you should be able to touch and feel right now is the love and the strength and the hope for you in this room, because you are the people who keep me sober today. And believe me, I like being sober. It's really been a privilege to be here again. and I will go on trying to keep my program real simple and keep trying to do just the next right thing. That's gotten me from a miserable existence, desperate and ill, an existence in which my patients knew I was dying and told me so, they just didn't know from what to where I am today, and that is not perhaps happy to be an alcoholic only, but very delighted to be a recovering alcoholic. Thank you for this.
0: Thank you, Sheila. I never had, I can remember, I never uh, intended to be an alcoholic. Um, In fact, I never remember, um, as I've heard in some stories, I never remember setting out to get drunk when I began drinking. Remember, I said I I was uncomfortable in a lot of circumstances, and alcohol made me feel better so I used alcohol because of the way it made me feel and yet uh, after a while I was um, not able to distinguish uh, how I was really feeling and I was uh, searching for uh, the next drink which would give me that warm glow that I had remembered and yet I never reached that it always fell over the edge before I reached that warm glow and I was intoxicated instead and totally powerless but uh, I uh, am able to say that uh, through this program I have not needed to be that way anymore step three now my story Uh, I want to ask Tom D from Georgia to come forward
2: Hi everybody, my name's Tom and I'm still an alcoholic. <laughs> it's good to see everybody, good to be here today and good to be sober. You've heard that before and I'm sure you're going to hear it again so I don't mind repeating it. I've been in the program a few years now and I'm also privileged to work in the field at this time. And when I talk to people are just coming into the program, particularly patients and the case of my profession I always tell them you know there's only a couple of things that really separates me from all the rest of y'all number one I got here a few years before you did and the second thing that I guarantee you there's nobody here that was any sicker than I was when I came into the program in fact I used to think when I was in treatment that if those folks ever found out just how sick I really was I would never get out of there and a few people sitting here in the audience who remember me in those days and could easily verify that but i think i did have one advantage over a lot of people coming into the program i knew i was sick i knew something needed to be done But being the usual typical controlling alcoholic i thought i knew better than they did exactly what one of the biggest problems i had early on in treatment and even really for a few months a year two three years was I, like a lot of folks, tend to be very literal-minded, very practical thinking, still am, probably to a larger extent than is good for me, and I begin to hear these things about AA, the steps, the third step, serenity, spirituality, all these things that we talk about. And I really didn't wasn't opposed to that on principle so much as I just really didn't see how that could benefit me in my life. It was sort of a and in trying to get well, it was kinda like, when are they gonna get down to treating my alcoholism? And a lot of that had to do with just how sick I was. I had a hard time sitting still five minutes of concentrating, even staying where I was. But I did listen. I kept my ears open, and when I finished the program, I followed that advice that A lot of us still pass on to newcomers in the program, and I still like to do and remind myself whatever else. I didn't drink, and I went to a lot of meetings, and it did get better. The third step, made a decision. You know, I really think this illustrates so well to me how the various aspects of the program sort of dovetail with each other. I think of the serenity prayer. When I first heard the serenity prayer, you know, that was nice. I'd heard it before. But how much real use was that ever going to be to me? And I thought about that for weeks, months, and even years. And I think gradually it began to dawn on me just how practical the serenity prayer in conjunction with the third step, Mother Principle of the program, can be. And I think it was a big start to realize that contrary to my ways back when I was using that I didn't have to jump in and control every situation. Still that old bugaboo in the serenity prayer, the third part, the wisdom to know the difference, which will probably haunt us to our grave, keep us thinking a little bit. But it was a big, big step for me to realize I didn't have to jump into every situation. I began to realize it just might be that a lot of things would take their natural course and come out a lot better if I just stayed out of it. And that certainly proved to be true. It's a cornerstone of my program. And every day when I get up in the morning, the no time I go to bed at night, every time I face a situation, an individual I deal with, whatever, I step back and think, you know, I wonder if I can really help this situation and maybe it'll get along just as well without me. And I can think of countless examples. In fact, before I came into treatment, one little bit of problem I got into was something called a DUI. And of course, I had to get out, fix it, get it dropped, so I made the grand attempt. You talk about making a situation worse, by the time it was over with, I'd have paid $30,000 to have simply paid that $300 fine and forgotten it. I can remember another incident that happened. Back when I was a young pup in practice when the dinosaurs were roaming, as my children point out, my ego trip, and by the way, when I went into practice, if the word egomaniac didn't exist, you'd have to come up with something similar to that to describe my behavior. My ego trip was to get out and get into every organization, particularly medical, that you ever heard of, dreamed of. I didn't care whether it was a medical staff, any committee, medical association, board of medical examiners, anything, you name it. And I found out where the power was, particularly the power over people, worked my way into the chairmanship and the presidency, and this went on for years and years. And as time went by, I had amassed several pages of all my wonderful accomplishments in something called a Curriculum vitae. And sometimes when I tell my story, I bring it along, I didn't this time, and wave it up and down and say, you know, that's called a CV, but it really isn't. That's my personal drunk-along. <laughs> ought to be named the Adventures of Tom the Great. But anyway, back, oh, this goes way back in my modest play. I like to say I was the youngest president ever elected to the largest medical staff in the state of Georgia and on and on and on. Anyway, I was president-elect and they appointed me to a committee to study a very bad situation they had in the Department of Pathology involving the various and sundry pathologists. And the core issue was, you guessed it, money. And there was a lot of backbiting and backstabbing and underhanded goings on. I listened to all this and finally, after they'd all made the presentations I just leaned back, chuckled and said very sagely, well boys there's one thing for sure, I don't believe I can make this situation any worse and I made a suggestion there was a dead silence and a little voice came from the back of the room and said Tom I think you just did (laughs) I really remember these things and I remember the other side too particularly in recent years things come up all the time I think one of the things that happened to me that I really got to thinking about this happened to be in tree farm business, raised pine trees. A lot of trees per acre. We plant about 800 of them per acre now. And I was out riding through one afternoon. This was when I'd been back out of treatment six months a year. My farm manager, who's about my father's age, would have been if he was still alive, uh, known him all my life. Didn't matter who I was, still talked to me like I was about a 10-year-old boy, this sort of thing even though he theoretically worked for him. Anyway, we were riding between these pine trees and this horse I just knew was gonna get me killed. He was bumping around and doing this and I kept trying to make him go this way and pull him that way and he was neighing and shying and rearing up. Finally, Uncle Buddy turned around and said, boy, you let that horse alone, he'll get a lot better job you ever will get through these trees. And I finally decided I couldn't do anything with him anyway. So I threw just threw the reins over his head and I said, well, you know, okay, that's the heck of a way to go. But I grabbed on the saddle horn We rode all afternoon. That horse never even brushed a hat off my head, never even putting a leg against a tree or anything else. I really got to thinking about that. sounds sort of silly. Taught a of listening, surrendering control by a horse. Told you I was one of the sickest that ever came in. (laughs) I remember a couple of years ago, Joyce knows well, when our son's first year in college, he got into a bit of a difficulty, which really probably wasn't his fault. But it was a pretty serious situation. And old ideas came back, old records, you know. I got to get to the middle of this and straighten this thing out. Don't get mad, get even. I was going to get a lawyer to do this, call the Board of Regents, on and on and on and on. But there's a big difference between thinking things and doing it. And at least I'd reach that stage. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this thing might just work out a lot better if I just leave it alone and stay out of it, and I did. I didn't do one thing, didn't make a phone call. It turned out I didn't even get up there for the hearings. I always know really I was going, but a snowstorm blocked me from getting there. And the thing worked out beautifully. If I'd have jumped into the middle of that with $100,000 and lawyers and what have you, court systems, there's no way it could have worked out any better than it did just by me leaving alone. So this is really a cornerstone of my policy, of my program, rather. Is Anytime I meet anybody, a problem comes up, any given situation, just stop and think. Surrender to prayer, third step, surrender. There's still that third part, though, the wisdom to know the difference, and we'll be working on that the rest of our lives. I think there's another part of the third step, and at least another way of implementing it. When I went back, I re-opened my office of uh, internal medicine. I really wasn't very happy doing that. Hadn't been happy for some years. In fact, the lifestyle I was leading was one of the big triggers for my drinking, I think. For a year, two, three years, I felt like a boat out there on the ocean. It was just wallowing around in the troughs, kind of going this way, going that way. No rudder, no motor, no sail. Wondering where I was going to go. Wondering if life was ever going to be really any good anymore again. I know a lot of it was my disease, but uh, seriously, I was wondering if I'd just end my days piddling around down there at the coast where I was living. I remember having a discussion with a fellow some of y'all may know, Doug McDee, he lives up in Detroit. He's in the uh, treatment center business up there. First IDA, IDAA meeting I ever attended up in Minneapolis, I believe, or somewhere in the Midwest. I was talking to him about it, what I thought I might do, and he just kind of listened a while. and he said, Well, Tom, I'll tell you, when the right thing comes along, you'll know it, and it'll happen. You may not know it right now, but sometime down the road, you'll find out that things I'll always work out for the best. And over two, three, four years, I tried to get a couple of things going, two, three, four things. Didn't work out very well. Applied for a couple of jobs that I thought I wanted. thought I wanted bad at that time. And I didn't get them. And you know, when I stop and think in retrospect, every single one of those things I thought I wanted would have been a total unmitigated disaster. Realistically, really. And so I went along and got interested in going in the field of chemical dependence, and it almost happened by accident. About three years ago I got an opportunity that just literally happened. and We jailed, hit it off. I worked in a certain city. A couple of years, I think I had as good a two years as I've ever had in my life. I really enjoyed it thoroughly. About a year ago I got another opportunity to go somewhere else, which was a delightful place. Glad to say that I'm still there, enjoying it completely. But I met Doug at ASAM meeting in Phoenix. A couple of months back and I was having lunch with him and I was telling him about how things had worked out just like that he studied chuckling he remembered the conversation and it really does impress me how all these things tie together you know you just kind of do the best you can then sit back try not to worry to death if it's right it's going to work out if it's not it's not going to work out and almost always it seems to work out for the best it may not seem that way at the time you know, I don't know anything in treatment center when I was first exposed to it in AA that drove me up the wall more than that word spirituality. It really smacked of church talk and preachers speak. And I just didn't see much in it. And, you know, I went along for months, a couple, of, three, four years, along with the steps, as I said, trying to find some practical application of this. And I found this, I a lot of different people got a lot of different ideas of what spirituality is. And A few years back I finally came to the conclusion that for me spirituality means simply doing the nice thing, the kind thing, the decent thing, the gentle thing, the honest thing, the right thing, and it dovetails again beautifully with what I think this program really gives us as a way of life, as a way of thinking, way of acting, way of believing, dealing with a fellow man and woman. And I think it gives us a way of life leading us to that ultimate goal which we'll never attain, never attain, but which we can strive for, what we call sobriety, which to me I still define as simply learning to get along in life, enjoy life, living happily, peacefully, contentedly with our environment, whatever the circumstances, but without the use of mood-altering chemicals. Thank you very much. Good luck to everybody be here a couple more days and I'm sure looking forward to Vancouver next year. Thanks a lot.